Hey everybody, it's Brian Ray of the Bayonets and from Paul McCartney's band, and you're listening to the ROK Podcast. I love that riff. Episode 11 of the ROK Podcast. Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. What's going on, everybody? How are you, Ken? I'm good. Yeah, I'm Well, there's a lot going good on in my too. life right now, and, uh, you know, so I'm dealing with that, but All right, before, I'm happy to be here. Before we get into it, do you want to tell us what's going on in your life right now, Ken? Uh, in a day and a half, well, two days, I guess now, <clears throat> I am moving to Canada. That's right, Canada. The golden boy is on his way home. Yeah, 17 years in the land of morning calm. But don't worry. Do not worry, your pretty little hearts. The ROK podcast will continue with Ken. Skype is magic. Yeah, thank God for technology. If not, we would be calling it a day. But that is not the case. So, episode 11, what do if we got? If there was no Skype, I'd probably never talk to you again. <laughs> I would never talk to you ever. God damn it. <laughs> All right, episode 11. Um, <clears throat> i got to be honest with you. This is probably one of my favorite interviews uh, Ken has done so far. We are talking with um, Brian Ray. Who is Brian Ray, Ken? Well, Brian Ray is in a band called The Bayonets. Mm-hmm. Um, he's also he also plays with a guy you might have heard of. Yeah, uh, and a, a little old band called. Uh, yeah, he plays with one of the Beatles. Yeah, Brian plays uh, guitar for the Paul McCartney band. And not only guitar, he covers for bass when Paul is playing guitar or piano. Yeah, that's right. That's so right. So he plays guitar and bass with the Paul McCartney band, which I read was the number one draw for concerts in 2016. Absolutely. So this guy played to the most people ever. in the year 2016. <laughs> Safe to say like, ever. Yeah, more people saw this guy than anybody else. Yeah. This uh, this uh, interview is especially um, great because, what, it's got so- stories of um, grave robbing. Grave robbing and um, Ed James, the wonderful blues jazz singer. Right. He talks about um, uh, the bayonets, and he also talks about his first gig slash audition with the Paul McCartney band. Um, we won't spoil it for you. It's a pretty impressive story, though. Yeah, this is... But, this you know, someone said to me the other day, this is as close as you'll ever get to a Beatle. <laughs> and I said, you know, that's true, but also, this is as close as I'll ever get to a bayonet, and this guy's bayonet music is fantastic. Like, this is, this is not just a Paul McCartney band guy this guy writes his own stuff and performs it and kicks ass doing it yeah it's wonderful <clears throat> the bayonets are featured on the intro and outro to each of these interviews so we really really hope you enjoy it we really hope you that uh we keep keep you as fans listening to the old rok podcast because we love you but there's more. What is the, what else is there? Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh right. That, and I that are, guy. <laughs> uh, we're back with our continuation of the top riffs. Uh, a couple episodes ago we did the top riffs of the sixties. Mm-hmm. So logically today is the top riffs of the seventies. Yeah, I can't wait to hear this and probably well I'll probably agree with most of them because you guys know a lot about uh, a lot more about music than I do. Yeah, but you know it's, it's especially tough. old man music. And and, and yeah. thank you. And it, it, it it's really tough because we like we said last time, we can only use one band total for the whole generation of the riffs. So that means we used Led Zeppelin in the 60s. Mm-hmm. We can't use Led Zeppelin in Ooh, the 70s. interesting. So it's always got to be a different band. Okay, okay, You know, okay. you'll never get two Zeppelin songs, even though I'm sure they're deserving. Mm-hmm. Can't have it. All right. And uh, just because I wasn't involved in this uh, doesn't mean that I do not have my own picks. So check out uh, the Facebook page because I will be posting my top 70s riffs after the episode is published. 
Yeah, punk doesn't count for riffs. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Had to get that. Brian Ray, everybody. Episode 11. Enjoy. <laughs> Brian Ray, thank you for joining us on the ROK Podcast. Thank you so much, Ken. Great to be here on The Rock. ROK yeah, this is, uh, with you. This is fantastic. Um, you know, I've got a ton of questions for you. I know we have a limited time, but I want to do as much as we can. So let's get going right to the very start. Uh, when and why did you pick up a guitar the first time? Oh, well, you know, I mean, uh, like so many guitar players from my generation, I was inspired by the music uh, of the Beatles and everyone that came before them that informed the Beatles' music. Uh, and m most, uh, most specifically, all of the so progenitors of the first wave of rock and roll, like Chuck Berry, Little Richard, Elvis, Everly's, Rick Nelson, you know, who had a TV show on in the States, and was every, you know, it was just like, it was hitting us all with such a force at that time. And I was just lucky enough to be introduced to it at a very young age. And I, I caught the fever. What can I tell you, man? And then when the Beatles came along and then swung the door wide open and everyone else came along with them, uh, I just was, uh, you know, then further empowered to pick up the guitar and start playing. Can you remember your first guitar? Oh, sure. The first guitar I owned was a $5 nylon string guitar from Tijuana. Uh, <laughs> the, but the first guitar I sat down and learned a little bit on uh, before that was a, a much better guitar, a Gibson guitar. But it was bought for and belonged to my brother, Stephen, who is no longer with us, unfortunately. But uh, the guitar is still in the family. But that wasn't my guitar. Uh, when I did get my own guitar, uh, I really, really, you know, just uh, bore down on it. It's not a bad guitar to start with, a Gibson. <laughs> yeah, it was great, an LG One. Oh wow! Okay, I'm. I'm. It was on your website today, and there's a a really interesting story about your first gig with uh, uh, Phil Kaufman. Yeah, uh, it's kind of a strange story. Uh, <laughs> it's a body body snatcher story. Yeah, it's a a bit of body snatching involved, and and yeah, it, yeah, he got charged with um with a grand theft, uh, which he called Graham Theft Parsons. <laughs> <laughs> right, because he just he got, for people who don't know, he stole uh, the body of Graham Parsons and set it on fire. Oh my God! You did have to just say it, right? Okay, well, so yes, it was on your true. website. I didn't think it was a secret. That's true. It's not a secret. Well, <laughs> the truth is, is that uh, Graham Parsons and Phil Kaufman, who you just mentioned, uh, were the best of friends. Uh, and Phil Kaufman was Graham Parsons' road manager and confidant. And Graham had confided in. In, uh, in Phil Kaufman that if he ever passed, he did not, in fact, want to be sent home and buried with his family's wishes, who were sort of uh, conservative, rich, orange, uh, orange juice industry family from Florida. He didn't want to be buried alongside of them, but he wanted rather to be honored uh, by uh, being cremated in their favorite spot. <laughs> Phil's and Graham's favorite spot, which was Joshua Tree. And Phil was just crazy enough and loved Graham just enough to go and do that crazy wish himself. <laughs> That's right. He did. What a story. What a crazy story. Probably <laughs> the most outrageous rock and roll story of all time. And, and the good news for you is that you got to play at the benefit to raise money for his, uh, his fines. That's that's right, and that <laughs> yes, and and uh, drank Graham Pilsner beer, and 
<laughs> That's right. And the funny thing about it is I was playing that benefit show to raise money for Phil Kaufman with none other than Bobby Boris Pickett doing the Monster Mash. And the band was called Bobby Boris Pickett and the Crip Kicker Five. So, yes, an <laughs> auspicious beginning to a long career, but a beginning nonetheless. And I'm very proud of my long friendship with Phil Kaufman, who remains to this day a very dear friend and a loyal friend and a terrific guy. You know, he was a, a Korean War vet. He was, uh, you know, he'd done time. He was a hell's angel. He was a biker and a. A lovely guy still is by all the uh, by by all accounts <laughs> living in Nashville, <laughs> Tennessee, and I'm very lucky to know him. I hope he has a book. Oh yeah, he does. Okay, uh, it's called uh, Phil Kaufman Road Mangler Deluxe, I think, and I think it was also updated a few years later. I'm going to get that for sure. But this this meeting with Kaufman and that concert led to you being the band leader for Etta James. That's right. I mean, so that day playing that benefit show for Phil Kaufman in the Valley at his old house uh, was the first time I'd met Phil Kaufman. And uh, we just, you know, as as they say, we, we hit it off like a house on fire. You know, we got on really well. Phil Kaufman soon thereafter invited me to come to Annette James rehearsal in the Hollywood Hills. And uh, I, I was so excited to do that. I grabbed my old gold top Les Paul and went up to uh, it, uh, uh, John Densmore's house, the drummer of the doors, went up to wow. his house and rehearsed with Etta James. And she was on a day pass from, uh, from her treatment facility. She was getting well. Um, and, uh, and we took off on what turned out to be a 14-year journey plus another 15 years after that for good behavior of just friendship. But uh, as band leader for her, uh, I was her, her guitar player and band leader for, oh, 14, 15 years, yeah. Oh, man. She sends chills down my spine. Yeah, she's... Uh, that, that you voice. know, you're, you're not the only person who describes her and her performance in just that way. It was amazing. Her voice, it blew me away. I mean, I was a, I, I was a fan of hers before I ever knew about you, um, and uh, because of my mom, actually, she introduced me. But uh, oh, chills! Yeah, every time, every time. And yeah. then, and then that led to Sir Paul. Well, you you get around. <laughs> yes. Oh well, you know, I I'd done a lot of things in between, but yeah, it was. Uh, it was terrific. Uh, we, Etta and I had a great time. I'm very lucky to have known her, and and her, my relationship with her uh, led to a lot of incredible things. Yeah, you bet. And of of course, um, none the least of which is uh, my current job to play with Paul McCartney, and and having been with him for now 15 years. Now, how is it? You know when you. You mentioned earlier that you, you grew up and you started playing music because of the Beatles to finally land a, or not to finally, but to get a gig playing with a Beatle. Um, like how awe-inspiring was it? Or how scary oh, was it? It was scary. It's scary, to be honest with you. Yeah, sure was. Uh, honestly, it's uh, one of those things where you, you can't even begin to describe it. You can't imagine what that's like. It's, it's like, you know, meeting, <laughs> meeting your own child for the first time. It's something you can't explain to somebody. You just have to do it, you know. And you were kind of thrown into the fire, weren't you? I sure right? was, yeah. Like you yeah. played the Super Bowl or something? Yeah, yeah. My first job with him, my first gig with him, honestly, was uh, playing one song for the Super Bowl before the uh, National Anthem in 2002, at February 2002, and uh, yeah, that was it. That was my audition with him. I didn't meet him until I got to New Orleans. I had only <laughs> met and auditioned with his producer, David Kahn, and I knew uh, some of the band guys before that, but I uh, never met Paul before, and that 
as Paul introduced me to some people backstage after we played, he goes, yeah, this is Brian's first show, just an intimate little gathering. <laughs> the Super Bowl. <laughs> the Super Bowl. <laughs> an intimate it, little audition. <laughs> That's quite an audition. Obviously, you passed. Oh, yeah, obviously. I mean, you know, later that night, he uh, gave me a hug goodnight and, and hugged the other guys goodnight and went up to his room before he turned and left. He said, Brian, stick with Abe and Rusty. They'll show you the ropes. See you in five weeks for rehearsal. And until that moment, I had no idea that I would be even called again. You know, I thought this was the last time that I was going to talk to him. So, of course, I was very, very uh, excited and, and I barely could sleep that night, of course. Oh, I can imagine. Now, you're, you're a jack-of-all-trades on the stage. You do bass duties, guitar duties, background vocals. Um, you know, I, I, I dabble in bass and I play guitar how hard is it during a show to switch between, you know, the bass and the guitar? Uh, for your fingers, I mean, it's quite, a, no, it's quite a difference. You know, I would have thought that would have been a bigger issue than it turned out being, to be honest with you. Uh, I, I, uh, I'm a guitar player primarily who plays a bit of bass. And when Paul McCartney called, of course, I started playing a lot more bass. <laughs> and, uh, right. and now I, I get called to play on records as a bass player. But, uh, you know, it's really that he trusted me and, and, and sort of, you know, just leaned on me to play the bass parts that he's come up with over the years, you know. Uh, and then to give me the, the sort of trust to be able to go and, add to them little bits here and there if I feel like it you know he'll always let you know if it's too much but yeah you know it's not really so much on the fingers as it it is it, it, it's it's something for, for your head you, you really got to get your head around the the two very different roles that a bass has in in a band or a guitar has in a band yeah is is there a a particular bass line that I mean he's iconic obviously in not just with the Beatles, but as in his bass playing, is there a, uh, one song that really makes you say, wow, I'm playing this? You know, like, Oh yeah. I mean, you know, there, there's songs like say getting better off of Sergeant Peppers and you get to really appreciate Paul's musicality. There, there's so much counterpoint going on between the, the lead vocal and the bass. There's never something that's not harmonious, you know, that's, not harmonically right. And it's not that the guy is a learned musician. He's not somebody who, you know, reads music fluently or learned technically. He just is the most musical character. And so these bass parts that you learn go with the lead vocal so well. But at that time, you have to remember, Paul was overdubbing his bass lines, which means that rather than playing the bass and singing simultaneously in the recording he would play maybe piano while singing something much easier to play while you're singing right and then overdub the bass later um and that bass part could then be freed of the responsibility of playing and singing at the same time also making it much harder to do live <laughs> all these years later when he does them live well so sometimes he he gives me the responsibility of playing that that more complicated bass part uh, and while he sings uh, a counterpoint lead vocal and plays uh, maybe guitar or keyboards or something else. But when you listen to that, for example, uh, getting better, that, that bass part, it's so interesting. Every time he plays the chorus, the part that goes, got to admit it's getting better. You know, every time he sings that part, the bass part corresponding to it is different every single time he plays in the song. The three different times it comes up, if I'm not mistaken, three times, he plays the part differently on bass. So he's very free, but it's all correct, but it's always different. And I just think that's it's very interesting about him, that he's that free that he allowed three different versions of the same thing to be on one of the best albums of all time. It's, it's just interesting. Yeah, but that was also back in the day where they actually did everything in one take. You know, they didn't they didn't 
cut and paste like a lot of people do these days. So maybe he just didn't remember the first part. <laughs> well, knows, it, right? no, it isn't so much one take. I mean, actually, he was recording these bass parts late at night after the basic track had been recorded. He famously has been in interviews talking about staying up late with the engineer, Jeff Emmerich, and recording late until the early hours of the morning until they felt like they had every single night uh, note correct. So, uh, yeah, on, on those bass parts, he actually uh, recorded way late at night all alone with just the engineer. Oh, man. On that album, yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, it's wild, isn't it? Wow. I just, I, I can't, I can't comprehend that kind of talent. <laughs> but I, I guess that's why I'm, I'm an English teacher. Um, you know, <laughs> one of the things I noticed, I've seen you guys twice with McCartney. Um, one of the things, two things I've noticed. One is, how the heck do you do three and a half hours every night you play? That's insane. And the other thing is, uh, you guys really look like you're having a blast. I mean, it doesn't look like it's just a gig. It looks like you guys are all really tight, and that includes uh, Paul McCartney. Like, he's laughing and joking the whole night. Um, tell us a bit about the guys in the band and how you manage to do these marathon concerts. Well, you know, uh, you know, the longest we play is about uh, two hours, 45. Uh, we've hit three hours before, but uh, you're right. It's a very long show, and if you'll notice, Paul never takes a break the whole night. Never. Never. While- while we get a few songs off here and there for good behavior, but he keeps going, yeah. uh, you know, while he does his solo parts. Um, but uh, I think that, that, that what you notice in the band is just friendship and camaraderie and trust. It's, it's what you get uh, from being friends before the band started, as was the case with Abe and I, we were together for many years uh, in France and in another uh, recording situations. And then Rusty and I were neighbors and friends, uh, independent of my relationship with with Abe. I mean, Rusty and Rusty and Abe had never met before, so it was uh, one of those funny things. That's awesome. Actually, I was just uh, reading a, a great book called Van Halen Rising, and. Yeah. Uh, I had no idea all these years that I followed you guys that Rusty was a monster back in the day when Van Halen was getting going. Well, yeah, Rusty was kind of um, a shredder, you know, and uh, yeah. you know all that sort of finger tapping on the on the on the key on the fretboard and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, he was really into that Van Halen stuff. He had kind of a, uh, you know, a L.A. long hair band going and. Uh, they used to play at uh, what was then called the, what was it called? Oh, gosh. The Rainbow? No, not the Rainbow. The Rainbow is really a nightclub. Mm, I forgot the name of it now, but yeah, sure. He was in that scene. Yeah, he's, uh, he's in the book. Good. Yeah, they got an, a, a, a few quotes from him, and they talk about him being, you know, they were all fighting for guitar supremacy, Van Halen and him and George Lynch and all those guys. So it was like a, a big competition back there. It was really interesting. <laughs> I, I don't want to spend I don't want to spend all my time on McCartney because I want to talk about the bayonets as well. All right, let's oh, do it. Man, I am loving the bayonets. Um, Thank you so much. God, oh, we've had just a storm of airplay and support over the last few years with six top ten classic rock singles, and we just couldn't be happier about it. Yeah, we're just we're just having a great old time with that. I'm hearing some punk influence on that. Am I right? Yeah, you hear some punk, and then you also hear some. Well, you know the the part of punk that uh, was was informed by and influenced by early rock and roll and rockabilly. You hear a little bit of that in the bayonets as well, like the low guitar stuff, like Link Ray or Eddie Cochran or right. or Dwayne Eddy. You know some of these sort of very, you know, very sort of proud, big, low, reverby guitar sounds. That That's uh, a big part of our sound, plus the sort of 50s 
tom-tom oriented drumming that you used to hear back then very swinging sort of stripper drums as i like to call it <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, yeah yeah it's just a really fun little um it's a fun little sound that we've really been having a great time with so how did this the bandettes get started well i've i've done two solo albums previous to the bayonets album and i i came to one of the guys that i like to write with uh that i've written with in my solo albums uh to write some new songs for what would have been a third solo album and that was oliver lieber and oliver lieber uh said to me as we were talking about it he said i'd rather do just a band thing why don't we just do a band thing rather than a solo album and i said okay sounds good and that was that. <laughs> we started writing a song for the for the bayonets that day, and named it a couple weeks later. And we just kept going, man. And what are the plans? Well, so we've got a lot of plans, actually. Glad you asked. We just uh, we released our first album called Crash Boom Bang, as you probably know. Love it. And uh, that had the six singles I talked about. Yeah. With a lot of support at, at Sirius xm radio so what we're doing now is um we just got a new record deal with gem records from the east coast and we're releasing re-releasing crash boom bang with two brand new additional songs on it Ooh. and we'll have worldwide distribution and uh some really nice support from uh somebody who really believes in us a lot so we've just finished recording, writing, recording two new songs, and they're being mixed as we speak right now. And those will be finished. Uh, those will be finished up this next week and released in the uh, spring at at different times. Two different singles at different times, and uh, we're going to be excited to uh, enjoy some more support out there in the in the world of bayonets fans are you going to have time to tour with this or, or is there another mccartney tour coming uh there will be a lot of uh paul work this year i i can't really say uh yet when and where but i do know that we will be playing again soon i know that uh japan has been announced so that's one wow but uh so we're doing some dates in japan and then who knows what's after that? So I think what about, it's going to be a very exciting full year. What about the Bayonets touring? Uh, oh, the Bayonets touring. That it really depends on how full the year gets with Paul. As you can imagine, sure. Paul has my first uh, priority. Uh, and I'm happy to give that priority to Paul. And uh, I'm going to hope for some time to do some Bayonets work as well. Oh, I would love to see that. I'll update everybody on my website, the thebayonets.com. Right. Okay, so we got to keep an eye out for that. Uh, I know you're short on time. Uh, one question, and then I'll let you go. Uh, okay, thanks. And this is not about your bands. It's more about the industry. Um, you've made a, a seriously solid career in music for however long now, 30, 40 years. What advice would you give to young aspiring musicians these days to to help them out in the in probably the toughest business going? Oh, that that's uh, that's a good question, and uh, thanks for the uh, question. For me, I guess you know what I've tried to do is take a lot of risks in my own career, and I was just very dogged and 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 dedicated to it, and very inspired. So. I would first say, get inspired, you know, find the people that light your fire. And that doesn't mean the people that made a lot of money. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about the people that make you as an artist, you as a guitar player, singer, keyboard player, whatever you do, that make you really lit up. Find that artist. You don't necessarily have to learn everything they did, note for note. It's, it's also not about that. I didn't do that. Right. But it is about uh, then taking that inspiration, making it your own kind of voice musically, 
And then the, here's the trick is you go out there into the world and you say yes to every opportunity and you take risks and you do the things that scare you and you also say yes to the things that are beneath you. And, uh, and that is the trick, I think. It's, it's saying yes to the, you know, the free blues jam and the open mic night. And it's also incumbent upon you to say yes to the things that you think maybe aren't a good fit for you. Maybe it's some singer you're not that into. Well, say yes anyway, because you never know who you're going to meet at the audition. So you go there anyway. You go to the clubs, you put up your hand, and you're willing to make a mistake. Mm. And uh, then the last thing is learn to play in time. So uh -huh. it doesn't matter how good you are alone. It's how good you are with other musicians right. in this business. So please get a metronome. <laughs> you know, there, there's apps for that, you know, Guitar Tool and other apps. Right. And learn how to play in time. So that when the drummer comes into the picture, you're not surprised by the fact that you seem to be going faster or you're slowing down. Right. And I guess also you could throw into there, learn, I mean, it goes with what you were saying, but learn more than one style of music. Yeah, Don't that's, pigeonhole that's yourself. A good idea. Yeah, that's a good idea too. Uh-huh. I would say being versatile really is helpful. Oh, and one last thing. Learn to sing. I think that if you're just a guitar player, just a bass player, just a keyboard player, you can get work if you're really good, right? Right. If you hang out and really are, are good. But if you sing, you probably triple your higher ability, your desirability. You really do. It's a huge, huge step up to be a singer. It also gets you up, up front in the front of the stage a lot of the time to be a singer. Right. Uh, so I would say that's a very important thing as well. Awesome. Well, listen, I don't want to take any more of your time. This was awesome. Have a good one, man. I appreciate it. Right on. Take care. Good luck. Okay. Bye bye. Bye. Crash boom bang. K Podcast, 70s edition. 70s edition. Welcome that's back. That's 70s podcast. That's 70s podcast. <laughs> Last time uh, we were talking to you guys, we were talking about the great riffage of the 1960s. Well, today we are coming at you with the riff gods of the 1970s. And these guys were riff gods. Yeah, I mean, the difficulty <laughs> with the 70s is... That was the sort of heyday of hard rock uh, riffage. And to be able to whittle it down to ten songs was an almost an exercise in impossibility. But you know what? I think we did it, and I think... I think we did it well. I think we did it well, too. We tried to have a nice little balance between different styles. Yeah. I mean, obviously, we're sticking in the rock pocket here, because this is the ROK podcast. And you do have to remember that the 70s was really, aside from Hendrix and Clapton, the birth of the guitar hero. Yeah. This so was, there was this tons was the era. of guitar stuff here. Yeah. I mean, you're thinking... Deep Purple and the Allman Brothers and Black Sabbath and Van Halen and ZZ Top. They all came Goodness out in this, gracious. this decade, you know, and... Woo. And there are a whole bunch of artists that 
characters we're just not going to be able to name. So please let us know who we missed. And yeah, don't worry, my feelings aren't hurt. I get it. We're going to miss stuff. That 10 years was pretty phenomenal for guitar music. Yeah, and I just hit a button and... Uh, gave away. You, you, we gave away one of them, but we'll keep it a secret until number eight. Okay. So let's start this off with number 10. There you go. New York City. New York. The birth of punk rock Americana style. The Ramones. Um, what is not to like about the Ramones? Some people claim they saw the Ramones play at CBGB's and it changed their life. Yeah, I wish I could have seen that. Yeah, me too. I've never seen them. We're, we're talking about the age of the guitar hero and the beauty of punk rock and the beauty of the Ramones is they were the anti-hero. That's they, right. They, they kept it simple. Just, oh. They kept it raw. They kept it straight ahead. Well, uh, part of that is because they only knew three chords. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and that, that's more power to them, but... Oh, that riff! Give me, give me that any day over the Nody Prog stuff. Sure, you know. Sure, because we, we were actually going to mention yes, but we thought, yeah, it's just too Nody and too Prog. Yeah, we just and said yes, no, no. <laughs> no. But the Ramones definitely, and when it was time for deciding our ultimate top ten here, one of the bands that had to slip to the wayside was the Stooges, uh, who are just chock full of amazing riffs and helped inspire the Ramones but as far as the definitive this defines the 1970s we had to go with uh, with the Ramones I Want to Be Sedated probably their most popular song yeah Blitzkrieg years. Bop could be and in there they got all kinds you know? of great stuff I mean really when you think about it every riff is the same and that that's what was so beautiful about yeah. the Ramones is that Less they just didn't best. give a shit and yeah. they, they made yeah. these D to E yeah. chord Songs and they were a classic. Yeah, and instantly. E everybody who listened to them realized that yes, I can have a rock band. Exactly. We talked on the last podcast about wanting to smash your guitar because yeah. they were so hard to play those songs. And finally, in the seventies, this band comes out and everybody says, "Hey, hey, they're just like me. I can do that. Yeah, I yeah. learned the D chord and the E chord. I'm, <laughs> I'm all set, man. <laughs> I can even throw an A in there. Dude, I could, and it would be just even better. But they didn't. They you didn't know. know. <laughs> and the thing I like about this song too, getting away from the riff. The guitar solo is one note. <laughs> it's just ding, 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 ding. That's it. Why? And and it's if it's the perfect note, why bother? Why bother changing? You don't need to, dude. It's perfect, and I would still say it's one of the best guitar solos ever recorded. Yes, and it's just <laughs> ding, 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 ding for twenty seconds, yep. and it's done. Yeah, it's perfect. Yeah, yeah, and even their lyrics were completely minimalistic, and that was part of the idea. You mm -hmm. know, people talk too much. People try to say too much. Yep. Just rock. And that's why we didn't put yes in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes has way too many <laughs> things to say that which, I don't want to hear. Which is not that Steve... Yeah, Steve Howe's an amazing guitar Absolutely. player. Absolutely. And what's his name? Chris Squire. Yeah, they're all amazing musicians, but yeah. there's more to uh, to rock music than being a, a really exactly. clever musician. I mean, Chris Squire's good. He, he's no yeah. muff, but he's, he's good. He's no muff, but he's he's duff. He's like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. All right, that brings us to <laughs> number, number nine. nine. Speaking of a band that, well, maybe he said a little bit too much and and and, and had a, a lead singer who also played flute, oh my God. which is the least rock and roll instrument there is. Absolutely. At the same time, yes, we're now going to contradict ourselves and we're throwing Jethro Tull into the 70s stew because... But remember that we're talking riff, riff. not song. Yep. Because this riff is a nasty son of a bitch. It yeah. is unreal. Yeah. The song is not my favorite song I've ever heard, but that riff... And, and it's because of that riff that people, even industry people, mistook Jethro Tull for a metal band. Right. Didn't they beat Metallica they beat for Metallica a Metallica for yeah. the best metal band. Yeah. And, and they're not a metal band. They're a, they're a prog band, you know? Yep. Um, and, but they can... They can From riff. time to time, they can riff, and, can and riff, certainly Aqualung. I mean, I'm sorry. I think that Aqualung is the entire album. Um, yeah, I'm not but sure. But the beginning that works, of the song we just heard there, fantastic. Again, and it's like we mentioned on a couple people from the '60s. <laughs> I couldn't name another Jethro Tull song to save my life, but Thick as a Brick. Oh, Thick as a Brick is them. Yeah, that's, that's right. The yeah, only yeah, other yeah. one I know. But yeah, but that riff, and I, I, I couldn't even. 
sing along to the song. I couldn't tell you what happens after that riff, but that riff is... That's riff, yeah. That's And that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about riffs. We're not talking about yeah. um, anything else. And yeah, got to give credit where credit is due. And that is a nice riff. Now, we're in the 1970s. The next song is... Number eight. And that song right there is the 1970s. And the, the, the definitive talk box. Oh my god. Wow, wow, sound that uh, Joe Perry used to get. Oh. You know, we, we could have added Peter Frampton, Peter Frampton. to that one. Yeah. But, but, but it's yeah. the same era, the same. I see the hair, I see the, the, yep. the, 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 the collars on the, but on the, the But the thing about this one, and I, I mocked you guys a lot last time, bass players. This one's for you because that is a sexy bass line. Beautiful bass line. Tom Hamilton. Yeah. Unreal. Yeah. Yeah. And it's really, there's, once the guitar kicks in, that's when the riff dies. That early riff, but then he's got that wicked well, He does in have the a middle. Oh, that's, yeah, that's that, pretty that's, sexy. That's, that's, But right now we're talking about yeah. that intro yeah, bass the intro riff. Part, the intro part of oh. Sweet Emotion belongs right there with the greatest moments in recorded rock and roll history. Recorded bass history, for yep, sure. For sure. For sure. And um, yeah, you know, I bet that was probably on their first album or second album. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure, but they still play it probably the last song of the night, sure. every night. Yeah. You yeah. Know, it's, it's just it's that and Walk This Way. Song. Walk This Way could have been on here. You know, we, we could have thrown that in there. Remember, as we reminded you guys last time, we're only doing ten. We're only picking one song from an artist. Um, last week, I believe, uh, in the 60s, we had Led Zeppelin. So guess what? We're doing the 1970s top riffs. No Led Zeppelin. No Pink Floyd. No Pink Floyd. We, we, we know. We, we know. All, they're great. We, we get we it. We, yep. we know what we're missing here, but we, we got to stick to our we own We understand. We, we, we're missing out on Black Dog. We're missing out on Rock and Roll, Stairway to Heaven. But guess what? That's We did them before. We did them before. They're the 60s. They're yesterday's news. Yesterday's newspapers. <laughs> <laughs> and we should also mention, we didn't mention it before, but... One of the ones that we had trouble with was the intro to this this episode of the podcast, uh-huh. which was that unbelievable "Victim of Changes" by Judas Priest. Amazing song. Yeah, and it's it's not on our list, by the way. It's just the the, the title. The title. And, track. and I'm going to give a little bit of a spoiler for episode or our next episode, which is the '80s. We will get to Priest. We will get to Priest. We will get to Priest. But that intro from "Victim of Changes." It makes my nether regions tingle. It does. It makes the muff tingle. Uh, we don't have a muff. But you get my point. And also, we know we could have thrown in Highway to Hell. We could have thrown in ACDC. Don't worry, we're going to get We're going to get to those guys. But don't right worry. now, let's stick with the 1970s. Let's go to number seven. Alice Cooper, uh, the classic song that I remember hearing that when I was a little kid. And I remember, before I even knew what that song was, I remember singing that song when school finished. Sure. Like when you're in grade five or six, people would go out going, school's out for summer, and I didn't know it was Alice Cooper, I just heard other people Great sing it. rock and roll song. I, we used to sing it and, and include the guitar lick in it, because it's so tasty. <laughs> bum, 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 wow. Bum, bum, bum. I mean, oh, it's a great song. There's a reason why they call this classic rock, folks, and if you don't know, if you're wondering who this Alice Cooper guy is that still, you know, gets attention from time to time, this is the stuff. You know, and it's funny, my my brother Rick, he saw Alice a couple years ago with Iron Maiden. Wow. And he said Alice was just incredible. He's getting better with age. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm uh, sure. You know, he's still playing Schools Out, and he's still playing, what is it all, what are all those old songs, you know? Oh, absolutely. Feed My Frankenstein and Welcome all that stuff. Welcome to My Nightmare. Yep. He's still playing all those songs, and he's kicking ass doing it. And, and again, here we are, like, the 70s are the heyday of, of the guitar hero. Guys like Alice Cooper, you know, that was the heyday of the glam, theatrical side sure, of Sure, if you think about it, too. like... 
no Alice Cooper, no Motley Crue, yeah. no Alice Cooper, no Twisted Sister, and all there those bands go. that did that. Yeah. Even Kiss, I think he inspired Kiss a little yeah. bit, you know. So, yeah, um, and, yeah, legendary. And legendary. much like the Ramones, who we mentioned earlier on the podcast. Um, all the gesturing and all the the style in the world goes nowhere if you're not backing it up with muscular music. And certainly, Mr. Cooper. He had the balls. It. He yeah. does, yeah. Is that actually recorded by Alice Cooper or the band Alice Cooper? I don't know. Because they used to be a band called Alice right. Cooper and then he changed his name. So that might be actually the band. Yeah. You should Cooper. probably be giving the guitar player more credit, but I don't know his name off the top of my head. Well, you know what I can do? <laughs> what can you do? I it's, can look that up as you ramble on it's, about it's stuff. It's too bad that it, if there was like some worldwide web where we could just access information wherever yeah. we wanted to. Just, just give me a minute. I'm going to run down to the library and find a book Please on do. Alice yeah, Cooper. Yeah, or I will, I will go to my landline and... <laughs> Call my older brother. Your landline, <laughs> and, and and hope that the line's not busy when I when I get through to him. Because I'm in a bit of a hurry. Here. I'm in a bit of a hurry because we're yeah. recording live. We're recording but, live. <laughs> it was recorded in 1972, and the guitar player's name is Glenn, Glenn Buxton, Buxton and Michael Bruce. There you go. Good, yeah. good musicians. Wow, Bob Ezrin. Bob Ezrin, and uh, he was the keyboard player wow. in uh, Alice Cooper's band. There you go. Oh wow! So Glenn Buxton, good for you. That yeah, absolutely. You uh, you changed the world of rock and roll. All right. Without even knowing it. Without even knowing it. Without us even knowing who the hell you are. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think he died recently. Oh no. I'm serious about that. Oh too. really? Yeah. Oh, Number it. six. Right. Yeah, if you don't know this one. The 1970-arama. Fantastic yeah. stuff. Although, I have a confession. I lost a bet about this song. Oh, no. I actually made a bet. I wasn't entirely sober when I was making the bet. That's not I was, surprising. I was convinced that this was a Steppenwolf song. Steppenwolf? We could have added a song by yeah, Steppenwolf. We, 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 talked, we talked about them earlier. They didn't yeah. make the cut. They're, no. They were sent There's sent much down better down. riffs. But Leonard Skinner, fantastic. And But I did actually, for most of my life, think that um, that particular song was uh, was Steppenwolf. I this is why. actually uh, a response to Neil Young's Southern Woman. Right. He insulted the South. Yeah. And I think there's even a line in the song, Neil Young can kiss my ass or something. Yeah, yeah. Something like that. I hope Neil Young remembers. Yeah. Southern man don't need him around. That's it. Southern man by Neil Young. This was a response to Southern Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that riff. Yeah. I mean, fantastic. There's really nothing you can say about this song except... That riff. That riff, yeah. That's the song. And again, not particularly difficult. You've probably heard a lot of bar bands over the years attempt it. And it's pretty hard to fuck up. <laughs> but I could good. find a way. <laughs> I could find a way to do that. And it, it actually, this this riff it drives reminds me a lot of a riff we're going to talk about a little bit later in this podcast, which is one of my favorite 70s riffs, but I'll mention that when we get there, but sure. it's very similar, and uh, just a, a little bit more balls on the other one, but this is a great one. Great one, great one, and very distinctive, it is the song. And who and, doesn't know this song? And who doesn't know it, and, and we're going to now move up to number five. There you go. I mean, we were just talking about distinctive riffs, which are the entire song. Roadhouse Blues. Now, a lot of people associate The Doors with the 60s, including me. A lot of people don't really like The Doors, including me. And me. But, I mean, come on. That That is just... That is right out of the smoky bar <laughs> rock and roll... 1970, and it's another one of those songs that every band has tried to cover at some point. Absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> and it's really hard to mess that one up too. I could find a way. I could probably find a way too. I, yeah. I, I, I believe I played this. In I, the I believe Spendeos. I did too. I, I, um, but Mr. yeah, it's a Isn't fun this the song. One with Mr. Mojo Rising. No, no, that's no. L.A. Woman. Yeah, but yeah. but Roadhouse Blues is is. Oh, this is I got up and got myself a beer. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. woke up this morning I and just I got myself a beer, and it's it's distinctive. It's 
it's very symbolic of that time in, in rock and roll. Um, Robbie Krieger, guitar player, doesn't get a lot of credit because he was in a band with Jim Morrison. <laughs> Nobody gets credit in that band. No. Name the drummer. John Dennismore. Ah, you knew it. Because yeah. he's he's been doing all this trash talking autobiographies, uh, okay, trying yeah. to make some money. I know the the keyboard player did pretty much everything in that band. Yeah. And uh, Robbie yeah, Krieger's this, a good guitar player too. But yeah, and they were never my favorite band in the world. And when it comes to '60s and '70s bands, they're the one I kind of tune out. Yeah. But this is, a, and again, it's the riff. The riff. That's that all. That riff talking. is awesome. And. Yeah, what else did you say? And now we're moving into the top four, and okay, this is the 1970s, ladies and gentlemen. So get ready, sit down, because we've got four incredible riff Latin songs. It's like we said on the last episode with the 60s. This is the meat and potatoes. This is this is your Thanksgiving dinner times five because it, uh, it doesn't get any meat. Yeah, I'm loosening this. the belt already. There you go. Let's Number start with four. Again, Southern United States, the land of opportunity and the uh, land of Texas. juicy, juicy riffs. Fantastic, ZZ Top. And you know we had to we had to fight on this one. It was yeah, this one or Lagrange. Um, but I think Lagrange is a better song because of the, the they got vocals. a lot of nice. Yeah, it's, there, it's more the range. Tush is more of a. It's a bouncy, fun, straight off your rock ass rock song. Oh yeah, oh, and yeah. it's about sexy girls and yeah, you know, getting you know, and it's and two minutes and nineteen seconds, and when they play it live, they do it twice. There you go. Why because, not? Yeah, because make it a real song. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> oh, but that that riff, my god. Yeah, I mean that that is right out of a car, blasting out of a car radio. Oh. 19 and you know we, we, we could have put these guys in the 80s with some of their uh, Eliminator stuff that was which their, was great yeah. but I don't think any of the riffs in the 80s beat this riff and I don't know any guitar players who who follow rock music who don't um, bow at the feet of Billy Gibbons um, oh dude he rarely makes a lot of people's immediate list of guitar we were talking about the era of the guitar grades but Billy Gibbons is a guitar great yeah and you know I remember seeing an interview with Steve Vai who's the mm-hmm. exact opposite of Billy Gibbons sure and he got to jam with him one time and he said it was the greatest moment of his life yeah like I was on stage with Billy Gibbons my yeah. god not yeah. Jimmy Page not mm-hmm. Tony Iommi it was Billy Gibbons this guy has influenced Everybody, yeah, he is a beast, yeah. and, and this song is exactly it, this what he's all about. Yeah, this song is a beast. Yeah. And the funny thing is, I think it's the only song that the bass player sings. Yeah, <laughs> it's not <laughs> Billy Gibbons right. singing, yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. and that's what, another thing that makes it kind of funny because, yeah, yeah maybe because he can't play and sing this one at the same time. <laughs> Possibly, it's a, it's yeah. a pretty tricky it's riff. It's a tricky one. Yeah. It sounds easy. It's not easy. So. Oh, Billy Gibbons, I bow to you. You are something special. Absolutely. And the next guy is kind of not bad. And, you know, he, he has a bit of a reputation in, in no, no. the world of rock and or roll. Let's give you... Number three. Okay, I got a problem, and I'm going to say this right Go off the top. Up. I make a point on every podcast to mention Van Halen. Right. Every person I interview for the podcast, I try to throw a Van Halen <laughs> reference into the interview. And I've done it successfully with everybody except John Five. I think we didn't get a reference. Didn't get to but, the Eddie, Eddie question. But this should be my number one. I, this is this is James picking these lists. Mm-hmm. And I'm just here for support, but in my opinion, you cannot have a top ten list with guitar riffs without putting Van Halen at the top. Well, we put it three. Yeah, we and, put it and three. let's put it this way: if it's like a playoff bracket, Van Halen makes the playoffs. Yeah, they in would. The 70s. Yeah, they would. They would win the next game. And sure. and we're gonna look at the next two after this, and you know, tell me how I'm wrong. Now I realize so if you don't know. That was Ain't Talking About Love from the first Van Halen album. First one, which is a 1970s album. And you could honestly... 78? Yeah. You could honestly have taken any of the songs on that album and put them in the top My initial thought was Running With The Devil. 
Running with the Devil is a great one too. And yeah, because I mean, of, because of this, we can't use Van Halen in the eighties. There's a whole bunch oh of great God, stuff in the eighties. We, we just lost Unchained. <laughs> we lost Unchained. But I, we had to throw this one in because he ain't talking about love. Is Redefined rock and roll guitar. That's it. This guy. Yeah. And that first album that they put out changed the world of rock guitar forever. Yeah. You know, you can probably think of three people who changed the face of rock and roll guitar. Jimi Hendrix, mm-hmm. Tony Iommi, mm-hmm. and then uh, Eddie Van Halen. Eddie Van Halen. And since then, everybody else, to me, is a clone of Eddie Van Halen. They're trying to do what he's doing, but they can't do it. No one can. You know, you can say James Hetfield in there, but whatever. Those three guys changed rock and roll. And particularly that first Van Halen album. I I listened to that on my older brother's 8-track when it came out. (laughs) And remember, we're talking about the 1970s here. People were excited about their guitar rock back in those days. But when this album came out, it lit the musical world on fire. And the funny thing was, um, everyone thought it would tank because punk was coming in. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, this hotshot guitar player comes out. And we were talking about the Ramones earlier, how they were just so basic. And everyone was getting into that. And then all of a sudden, disco and punk, fuck you. I'm Eddie Van Halen. And I'm going to rip you to shreds. And he did. You know, they were the biggest band of the year that year. And, And even people who would be not inclined to listen to guitar rock... I know very few people that say anything bad about the early Van Halen. There's all, nope. there's so much good stuff going on on their albums. The first five or six albums by Van Halen are mandatory and, listening and, for everybody. And ain't talking about love is from the first one. And like Ken said, I do agree. You could pick any song off that album, but there's something about that song that I think the the beauty of that song is that he hated it, and he was <laughs> when he wrote that riff, he was embarrassed to bring it in because. Uh, he thought the other band, the other band members, would, would laugh it. at him. That's crazy. Yeah, that's but you yeah, know he thought it was so shitty that the other band members would laugh at him, and then he finally played it, and they said, "Hey, we can do something with this." Yeah, well, and did they, they ever? Did did they yeah. ever? Yeah. What and again, it's like riff. it's like we talked about with uh, Aerosmith. You know, even when Van Halen plays now, yeah, this is the last song. Yeah, it's just. And that one song that just now I was a bit, I was a bit young at the time. I was eight, but it wasn't even really that big of a hit, was it? Like the big hit off that no, album was "You, you really, really Got, got me. me" and "Running with the Devil." Yep. Ain't talking about love was just one of those album songs. Yeah, and it just it worked well live, and it kind of just gained a life its yeah. of its own. Yeah. Oh my God, and Eddie again, Van Halen. You know, I bowed to ZZ Top. I he's do now a bigger bow he's now prostrating himself on yeah. the floor. Man, I'll tell you. However, we no still, one we, but, can beat Eddie Van. But they're only number three on our list, much to Ken's chagrin. That is your choice, not mine. But choice. when I introduce the next two songs, and again we're talking seventies, again we're talking riff, again we're talking defining moments of uh, of an era. Let's uh, let's take a look. I disagree, but number two. Number two. It's good. I like it. It's good. And I'm not saying he's shitty. I'm not saying he's bad. I'm saying Van Halen should be number one. Okay. Because he's my guy. He's my guy. Well, I would say Black Sabbath Paranoid, that whole album. It's great. I mean... We talked about it earlier. We were having... What, what did we put on from that album? It wasn't the question. And we put on... Warpigs. Uh, Warpigs. Isn't Sweetleaf on that as well? It might be, yeah. I'm pretty sure it is. But, you know, Black Sabbath is, is you know, the founding voice of heavy metal. You I know? agree. Well, I'll disagree with that well, one Well, you can well, say Hendrix and... No, I'm going Judas Priest on the founding. Who was, who was earlier? Black Sabbath or Judas Priest? Black Sabbath. But I don't consider Black Sabbath a heavy metal yeah, band. Yeah, right. I consider them a blues a band blues band tuned down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Which is heavy metal, isn't it? Well, no, no, it's not. Their riffs were heavy, but yeah, I don't yeah. consider them metal. Right. I, I know people are going to yell at me for this, but I just consider them really dark rock and roll. Yeah. 
but it wasn't until Priest came out with that Victim of Changes song that made everyone go that we listened to at the beginning and we will will hear it at the end yeah Yeah, I love I love Sabbath and I'm not knocking them I'm just saying I don't think they were heavy metal okay fair enough that's all that's all I'm saying that's all I'm saying fair enough but I love Tony Iommi and I know the reason they tuned down to make it heavy is because he has no fingers he has no fingers right and uh and it's a it's a fantastic song and there's always interesting stories about these classic riffs. Yeah. This was a throw-on at the end. They needed filler. They needed three minutes to fill the album. Yeah. And he came up with Paranoid. <laughs> My God, man. Like, like, just... The man... The yeah. man shat riffs for Yeah. And I, I read a, a really interesting interview with uh, James Hetfield from Metallica, and he said he hates Tony Iommi because he... He wrote all the good riffs. All the choice. And all the choice. I think it was uh, it was it was Hetfield who called Tony Iommi riff master god. Yeah, yeah. And that's all you got to say. I mean, he's great. And since this is a top top ten list of, of riff songs of an era, I mean, and Black Sabbath Paranoid, the whole album was one gargantuan riff party. Oh yeah, man. <laughs> you know. Yeah, man. But it's still not better than Ain't Talking About Love. Ah, I don't know. I'll take that to my grave. <laughs> now. You want to talk sooner rather than later. You want to talk about defining sounds of a decade. Now we're sticking with rock. The the seventies had a lot of disco and a lot of other forms of music. Disco duck. We're we're sticking with rock. Number when one. When you think of nineteen seventies, what do you think of? Number one. Who hasn't played that in a guitar shop? Who hasn't <laughs> played that in their sleep for without even knowing what, what it is? Yeah, it, it's just... Yeah, I was playing that riff on the guitar before I had even heard of yeah. Deep Purple. One of my early By the way, if you don't know, <laughs> <laughs> dummies, it's Deep Purple Smoke on the smoke Water. on the Water. And it's a really cool story about Frank Zappa playing a show... And uh, the yeah. venue went up in smoke, and they had to run away. And um, that was the, where Deep Purple was supposed to record, I think, or they were recording in the same city. Something was going on there. And, and, yeah. and, and another or I story. think he was just there watching the no, show. No, no, no. Deep Purple was in the city. I mean, they all came mm. down to Montreux. They were there recording this album, Machine Head. And they went to the Zappa show. And it went up, and in, it flames, went up in flames, and then yeah. they decided to write this really simple, stupid song that <laughs> is the most defining yeah. song of the 1970s. Yeah, it's kind of been banned in guitar shops. You're not allowed to And understandable. Anymore, understandable. Of course, of course. But, I mean, hey, at one point there was a day when this was original, new, and, and, and people were going, wow, does that ever totally. sound cool? Totally. I remember when I was just a baby hearing that. You know, totally. My, my, totally, man. It was, it was one of those riffs that just was a riff. Yeah. You know? And, like, and it's the whole it's song. It's the whole song. And I'm sorry... You know, I don't like the drumming in the song. I don't like the bass in the song. I only like Richie dun, Blackmore. Dun, 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 and dun, even when dun. Richie Blackmore is doing his Renaissance revival band, I'm sure they must do this song. He could play this on a mandolin. No problem, man. I'm sure he, they, him and his wife can find a way to play this on a they mandolin gotta, and a lute. Get some fiddles going. <laughs> a lute. <laughs> Yes. It's the druids dancing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> now I think there are much better songs by Deep Purple, like Highway Star, and what's the other one called? That uh, is I like. Maybe I'm a Leo. Yeah, that's a good one. But I'm thinking of the Hush. Hush, Hush is a wicked song. Yeah. There Burn, are much better David songs. David Coverdale, that was yeah. a great song. And Tokyo a great Woman. My Woman from Tokyo. My Woman, yeah. <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, three beers deep. Give me a break. <laughs> but uh, but this is the riff. Yeah, this, this is, is the, the riff. This is the riff. If you want to pick the guitar solo, you go to Highway Star. If you want to pick the riff, you mm-hmm. go to Smoke on the Water. And you know, when we came up with this idea of, of riffs by era, the first thing I scribbled down on a piece of paper was 1970 Smoke on the Water. Of that course. Was, that, the first thing that came to my of mind. Of course. Um, my first was Stairway to Heaven. Sure. But we've already done We've Zeppelin, already done Zeppelin. We and we're we not putting return. Smoke on the Water. I'm sorry. We're, or, uh, we're not doing Stairway to Heaven. I'm sorry. Much like Smoke on <laughs> the Water, it's been banned it's been from banned many, from many, many, many music stories. You just stories. don't do it. But And as we progress uh, during this podcast series into the 80s, 90s, and zeros, 
um, you're going to often perhaps hear me say, hey, this song is the smoke on the water of this particular era because... But it, you'll also hear that a lot of the songs from the 80s mm-hmm. sound exactly like smoke on the water. Yep. Just a little faster or a Just, little yeah. bit mixed up, but yeah. it's the same thing. Yeah. And it was so influential, this yeah. song. You know, I wish it wasn't. I think there are much better songs so, from totally, the 70s, yeah. but yeah. that riff, yeah. you can't you, yeah, you can't argue it. All right, we're going to take off. Yep. We're going to let Judas Priest take you out with the ending of Victim of Changes. And Speaking we will see you on riffs. the next episode of... The top five. Yeah, let us know what podcast. you think. Give us some feedback. Give us some dissension. Give us some disagreement. Give us some ideas. We always want to hear from you. And we will be back with the 80s. <laughs> That's even tougher than the 70s when when you think of guitar riffs. But we will be back with the 80s on the next episode of the ROK Podcast. Thanks for listening. All right, guys. See you soon. Yeah.